Chapter Six, Part One of the Iron Horse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave Wills. The Iron Horse by Robert Michael Ballantyne. Chapter Six, Part One. History of the Iron Horse. Having gone thus far in our tale. Permit us, good reader, to turn aside for a little, to make a somewhat closer inspection of the iron horse and his belongings. Railways existed long before the iron horse was born. They sprang into being two centuries ago in the form of tramways, which at first were nothing more or less than planks or rails of timber laid down between the Newcastle-on-Tyne collieries and the river for the purpose of forming a better way over which to run the coal-trucks. From simple timber rails, men soon advanced to planks having a strip of iron nailed on their surface to prevent too rapid tear and wear, but it was not till the year 1767 that cast-iron rails were introduced. In order to prevent the trucks from slipping off the line, the rails were cast with an upright flange or guide at one side, and were laid on wooden or stone sleepers. This form of rail being found inconvenient, the flange was transferred from the rails to the wheels, and this arrangement, under various modifications, has been ever since retained. These innocent railroads, as they have been sometimes and most appropriately named, seeing that they were guiltless alike of blood and high speed, were drawn by horses, and confined at first to the conveyance of coals. Modest though their pretensions were, however, they were found to be an immense improvement on the ordinary roads, insomuch that ten horses were found to be capable of working the traffic on railroads, which it required four hundred horses to perform on a common road. These iron roads, therefore, began to multiply, and about the beginning of the present century they were largely employed in the coal-fields and mineral districts of the kingdom. About the same time, thoughtful men, seeing the immense advantage of such ways, began to suggest the formation of railways or tramways to run along the side of our turnpike roads, a mode of conveyance, by the way, in regard to towns which thoughtful men are still, ever at the present day of supposed enlightenment, endeavouring to urge upon an unbelieving public a mode of conveyance which we feel very confident will entirely supersede our cumbrous and antiquated bus in a very short time. What, we ask, in the name of science and art and common sense, is to prevent a tramway being laid from Kensington to the bank, or elsewhere, which shall be traversed by a succession of roomy carriages following each other every five minutes, which tramway might be crossed and recrossed and run upon, or, in other words, used by all the other vehicles of London, except when the rightful carriages were in the way. Nothing prevents save that same unbelief which has obstructed the development of every good thing from the time that Noah built the ark. But we feel assured that the thing shall be, and those who read this book may perhaps live to see it. But... To return. Among these thoughtful and far-seeing men was one Dr. James Anderson, who in 1800 proposed the formation of railways by the roadsides, and he was so correct in his views 
that the plans which he suggested of keeping the level by going round the base of hills or forming viaducts or cutting tunnels is precisely the method practised by engineers of the present day. Two years later, a Mr. Edgeworth announced that he had long before formed the project of laying iron railways for baggage wagons on the great roads of England, and in order to prevent tear and wear, he proposed, instead of conveying heavy loads in one huge wagon, to have a train of small wagons. With the modesty of true genius, which never overestimates or forms wildly sanguine expectations, he thought that each wagon might perhaps carry one ton and a half. Edgeworth also suggested that passengers might travel by such a mode of conveyance. Bold man! What a goose many people of his day must have thought him! If they had been alive now, what geese they might have thought of themselves! The Society of Arts, however, were in advance of their time. They rewarded Edgeworth with their gold medal. This man seems to have been a transcendent genius, because he not only devised and made, on a small scale, iron railways, but proposed to take ordinary vehicles, such as mail coaches and private coaches, on his trucks, and convey them along this line at the rate of six or eight miles an hour with one horse. He also propounded the idea of the employment of stationary steam engines, locomotives not having been dreamed of, to drag the trains up steep inclines. Another semi-prophetic man of those days was Thomas Gray of Leeds, who in 1820 published a work on what he styled a general iron railway or land steam conveyance to supersede the necessity of horses in all public vehicles, showing its vast superiority in every respect over the present pitiful methods of conveyance by turnpike roads and canals. Gray, whose mind appears to have been unusually comprehensive, proposed a system of railway communication between all the important cities and towns in the kingdom and pointed out the immense advantage that would be gained to commerce by such a ready and rapid means of conveying fish, vegetables, and other perishable articles from place to place. He also showed that two post deliveries in the day would become possible, and that fire insurance companies would be able to promote their interests by keeping railway fire engines ready to be transported to the scenes of conflagration without delay. But Gray was not esteemed a prophet. His suggestions were not adopted, nor his plans acted on, though unquestionably his wisdom and energy gave an impulse to railway development of which we are reaping the benefit today. His labours were not in vain. Horse railways soon began to multiply over the country. The first authorised by Act of Parliament was the Surrey Railway in 1801. Twenty years later, twenty lines of railway were in operation. About this time, too, another man of note and of great scientific and mechanical sagacity lent his powerful aid to advance the interests of the railway cause. This was Charles McLaren of Edinburgh, editor of the Scotsman newspaper, for nearly thirty years. He had long foreseen and boldly asserted his belief in the certain success of steam locomotion by rail at a time when opinions such as his were scouted as wild, delusive dreams. But he did more. He brought his able pen to bear on the subject, and in December 1825 
published a series of articles in the Scotsman on the subject of railways, which were not only extensively quoted and republished in this country and in America, but were deemed worthy of being translated into French and German, and so disseminated over Europe. Mr. McLaren was thus among the foremost of those who gave a telling impulse to the cause at that critical period when the iron horse was about to be put on the rail. The right horse in the right place, for it was not many years afterwards that that auspicious event took place. Mr. McLaren not only advocated generally the adoption of railways, but logically demonstrated the wonderful powers and capacities of the steam locomotive arguing from the experiments on friction made more than a half a century before by vincent's column that by the use of steam power on railroads a much more rapid and cheaper transit of persons as well as merchandise might be confidently anticipated he leapt far ahead of many of even the most hopeful advocates of the cause and with almost prophetic foresight wrote there is scarcely any limit to the rapidity of movement these iron pathways will enable us to command. And again, we have spoken of vehicles travelling at twenty miles an hour, but we see no reason for thinking that, in the progress of improvement, a much higher velocity might not be found practicable. And in twenty years hence, a shopkeeper or mechanic, on the most ordinary occasion, may probably travel with a speed that would leave the fleetest courses behind. Wonderful words, these. At a first glance we may not deem them so, being so familiar with the ideas which they convey. But our estimate of them will be more just if we reflect that, when they were penned, railways had scarcely sprung into being. Steam locomotives had only just been born and not only men in general, but even many learned, scientific and practical men regarded the statement of all such opinions as being little short of insanity. Nevertheless, many deep-thinking men thought differently, and one contemporary, reviewing this subject in after years, said of Mr. McLaren's papers, "'They prepared the way for the success of railway projectors.' We have said that the steam locomotive, the material transformer of the world, our iron horse, had just been born. It was not, however, born on the rails, but on the common road, and a tremendous baby giant it was, tearing up its cradle in such furious fashion that men were terrified by it, and tried their best to condemn it to inactivity, just as a weak and foolish father might lock up his unruly boy and restrain him perforce, instead of training him wisely in the way in which he should go. But the progenitors of the iron horse were, like their Herculean child, men of metal. They fought a gallant fight for their darling's freedom, and came off victorious. Of course, many men and many nations were anxious to father this magnificent infant, and to this day it is impossible to say precisely who originated him. He is said by some to have sprung from the brains of Englishmen. Others assert that brains in France and Switzerland begat him, and we believe that Brother Jonathan exercised his prolific brain on him before the actual time of his birth. The first name on record in connection with this infant Hercules is that of a Dr. Robinson, who communicated his ideas to Watt in 1759. The latter thereupon made a model locomotive, but entertained doubts as to its safety. 
Oliver Evans of Philadelphia patented a steam wagon in 1782. William Murdoch, the friend and assistant of Watt, made a model in 1787 which drew a small wagon round a room in his house in Cornwall. In the same year, Symington exhibited a model locomotive in Edinburgh, and in 1795 he worked a steam engine on a turnpike road in Lanarkshire. Richard Trevithick, who had seen Murdoch's model, made and patented a locomotive in 1802. It drew, on a tramway, a load of ten tons at the rate of five miles an hour. Trevithick also made a carriage to run on common roads, and altogether did good service in the course. Blenkinsop of Middleton Colliery, near Leeds, made locomotives in 1811, which hauled coals up steep ascents by means of a toothed rail, with a toothed propelling wheel working into it. This unnatural infant, however, turned out to be not the true child. It was found that such a powerful creature did not require teeth at all, and that he could bite quite well enough by means of his weight alone. So the teeth were plucked out and never allowed to grow again. After this, in 1813, came Brunton of Butterley, with a curious contrivance in the form of legs and feet, which were attached to the rear of his engine, and propelled it by a sort of walking motion. It did not walk well, however, and very soon walked off the field of competition altogether. At last, in the fullness of time, there came upon the scene the great railway king, George Stevenson, who, if he cannot be said to have begotten the infant, at all events brought him up and effectually completed his training. George Stevenson was one of our most celebrated engineers and the father of the railway system. He may truly be said to have been one of mankind's greatest benefactors. He was a self-taught man, was born near Newcastle in 1781, began life as a pit engine boy with wages at twopence a day, and ultimately rose to fame and fortune as an engineer. In 1814, he made a locomotive for the Killingworth Colliery Railway. It drew 30 tonnes at the rate of four miles an hour, and was regarded as a great success. In 1825, an engine of the same kind was used on the Stockton and Darlington Railway, of which Stevenson had been made engineer. But the great crowning effort of Stevenson, and the grand impulse to the railway cause, which carried it steadily and swiftly on to its present amazing degree of prosperity, did not occur until the year 1829. Previous to that date, the Manchester and Liverpool Railway was being constructed, and so little was known as to the capabilities of railways and the best mode of working them, that the directors and engineers had some difficulty in deciding whether the line should be worked by fixed engines or by locomotives. It was ultimately decided that the latter should be used, and a premium of £500 was offered for the best locomotive that could be produced, in accordance with certain conditions. These were that the chimney should emit no smoke, that the engine should be on springs, that it should not weigh more than six tonnes or four and a half tonnes if it had only four wheels, that it should be able to draw a load of twenty tonnes at the rate of ten miles an hour, with a pressure of fifty pounds to the square inch in the boiler, and should not cost more than five hundred pounds. The iron horse was now at last to assume its right position. It was no longer an infant, but a powerful stripling, 
though still far from its full growth, as far as six tons is from sixty. Four iron steeds were entered to compete for the prize. It was in October 1829 that this celebrated trial came off, and great was the interest manifested on the occasion, for not only did the public entertain doubts as to the capabilities of locomotives, but very few even of the engineers of the country would admit the possibility of a locomotive engine attaining a speed greater than ten miles an hour. First came the novelty of Braithwaite and Ericsson, then the Saint-Pariel of Hawkworth, the perseverance of Burstall, and lastly the rocket of Stevenson. Of the first three we shall merely say that the novelty, being weak in the wheels, broke down. The Saint-Pariel burst one of her cylinders, and the Perseverance turned out to be too heavy to comply with the conditions of the trial. The rocket advanced and was harnessed to a train of wagons weighing thirteen tons. The fire was lighted and the steam got up. The valves lifted at the stipulated fifty pounds pressure, and away it went with its load at an average speed of fifteen and a maximum speed of twenty-nine miles an hour. Thus triumphantly the rocket won the prize of five hundred pounds, and the iron horse was fairly and finally married to the iron road. One of the important elements of Stevenson's success lay in the introduction of numerous tubes into his boiler, through which the fire and heat passed, and thus presented a vast amount of heating surface to the water. Another point was his allowing the waste steam to pass through the chimney thus increasing the draught and intensifying the combustion. For heat is the life of the locomotive, and without much of this, high rates of speed could not be attained. The difference between the first locomotive and those now in use is very great, as may be seen any day in London by anyone who chooses to visit one of our greater railway stations, and go thence to the Kensington Museum, where the rocket is now enshrined, a memorial of Stevenson's wisdom, and the beginning of our magnificent railway system. Yet, though the difference be great, it is wonderful how complete the rocket was, all things considered. The modern improvements made on locomotives consist chiefly in clothing the boiler with wood, felt and other non-conductors to increase the life-giving heat, in heating the feed water, coupling the driving wheels, working the cylinders horizontally, economising steam by cutting off the supply at any part of the stroke that may be required, and economising fuel by using raw coal instead of coke, and consuming the smoke, besides many other minor contrivances, but all the great principles affecting the locomotive were applied by George Stevenson and illustrated in the rocket. It is no wonder that the first iron horse was clumsy in appearance and somewhat grotesque, owing to the complication of rods, cranks, and other machinery which was all exposed to view. It required years of experience to enable our engineers to construct the grand, massive, simple chargers which now run off with our monster trains as if they were feathers. When the iron horse was first made, men were naturally in haste to ascertain his power and paces. He was trotted out, so to speak, in his skeleton with his heart and lungs and muscles exposed to view in complex hideosity. Nowadays he never appears without his skin, well-groomed and made gay with paint and polished brass and steel. 
we have said that the rocket drew thirteen tons at nearly thirty miles an hour. Our best engines can now draw hundreds of tons, and they can run at the rate of above sixty miles an hour at maximum speed. The more ordinary speed, however, for passenger trains is from thirty to forty-five miles an hour. The weight of the rocket was six tons. That of some of our largest engines with tenders is from forty to above fifty tons. From the time of the opening of the Old Manchester and Liverpool Railway in 1830 to the present day, a period of little more than forty years, railway construction has gone forward throughout the land, and we may add the world with truly railway speed, insomuch that England has become covered from end to end with an absolute network of iron roads, and the benefit to our country has been inconceivably great. It would require a large volume to treat of these and correlate subjects as they deserve. Two hundred years ago, the course of post between London and Edinburgh was one month. Before an answer could be received, two months had to elapse. About a hundred years later, there was one stagecoach between the two cities, which did the distance in a fortnight, rendering communication and reply possible once in each month. In those days, roads were uncommonly bad. One writer tells us that, while travelling in Lancashire, a county now traversed by railways in all directions, he found one of the principal roads so bad that there were ruts in it, which he measured four feet deep, and that the only mending it received was the tumbling of stones into these holes to fill them up. The extremely limited goods traffic of the country was conducted by the slow means of carts and wagons. Enterprising men, however, then as now, were pushing the world forward, though they were by no means so numerous then as now. In 1673 it took a week to travel between London and Exeter, and cost from forty to forty-five shillings. About the same period a six-horse coach took six days to perform the journey between Edinburgh and Glasgow and back. To accomplish fifty miles or thereabouts in two days with a six-horse stagecoach was considered good work and high speed about the beginning of last century. Near the middle of it, 1740, travelling by night was for the first time introduced, and soon after that a coach was started with a wicker basket slung behind for outside passengers. Some years afterwards an enterprising individual started a flying coach drawn by eight horses, which travelled between London and Dover in a day, the fare being one guinea. Even at the beginning of the present century, four miles an hour was deemed a very fair rate of travelling for a stagecoach. With the improvement of roads by the famous Macadam in 1816, began improved travelling and increased speed. The process was rapid, Mail coaches began to overrun the country in all directions at the then remarkable pace of from eight to ten miles an hour. And let us remark in passing there was a whirl and dash about these stage coaches which railway trains, with all their velocity, can never hope to attain to, except when they dash into each other. Man is but a weak creature in some senses. Facts are scarcely facts to him unless they touch his eye or ear. The smooth run of a train at twenty or even thirty miles an hour, with its gradual start and gentle pull-up, has but a slight effect on him now, 
compared with the splendid swing of the well-appointed mail-coach of old as it swept round the bend of a road, and with red-coated driver and guard, cracking whip, flying dust and stones, and reeking foam-flecked horses, dashed into town and pulled up, while at nearly full speed, amid all the glorious crash and turmoil of arrival. No doubt the passing of an express train within a yard of your nose is something peculiarly awful, and if you ever get permission to ride on the engine of an express, the real truth regarding speed, weight, momentum will make a profound impression on you. But in ordinary circumstances, the arrival of a train cannot for a moment compare with the dash, the animal spirit, the enthusiasm, the romance of the mail coach of days gone by. About the time that the day of slow speed was drawing to a close, 1837, licenses were granted to 3,026 stagecoaches, of which 1,507 went to and from London, besides 103 mail coaches, and it has been estimated that the number of passengers carried in the year about that time was two millions. In regard to the merchandise traffic of the kingdom, we cannot give statistics, but we ask the reader to bear in mind that it was all conducted by means of heavy wagons and slow-going canal barges. End of chapter 6, part 1. History of the Iron Horse. Recording by Dave Wills.